Welcome to this episode of My Journey as a Physicist. Each episode features an interview with a physicist to learn about their work, their interest outside of physics, and their professional journey of how they ended up where they are today. Season 3 features physicists involved in the long-range plan for nuclear science. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome, Vincenzo Ciriano. Could you introduce yourself and tell us about uh, yourself and your research? Oh, hi. So, yeah. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, yes, my name is Vincenzo Ciriliano. I'm a theoretical physicist. I'm uh, currently a senior fellow at the Un- uh, Institute for Nuclear Theory at the University of Washington in Seattle. It was a long journey for me to get here to Seattle. So I, I, I'm originally, as you can tell from the accent, I'm originally from Italy. I'm from uh, southern Italy, small, small village. Um, I went to college to the University of Pisa and northern central northern Italy and then I was doing so I went I did undergraduate there and also graduate school but during the graduate school I was a visiting graduate student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst so I, it was my first experience uh, abroad I then had postdoctoral appointments in uh, Vienna Austria for one year in Valencia Spain for two years and then back in the U.S. at the California Institute of Technology for about two and a half years before getting a scientist job at Los Alamos National Laboratory, where I spent 16 years of my life, professional and non-professional life. And then I recently moved earlier this year to Seattle. So it was a long journey. Along the way, I made lots of friends, established fruitful, exciting collaborations with many colleagues. And I could say I had quite some fun in physics as well. So, so that, that's who I am, my, a little bit of a background. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, uh, you asked about uh, my research, as I said, I'm a theoretical physicist, really working, if you want to bin things, I'm not in one particular, I'm at the interface of two bins, nuclear theory and particle theory or low energy. And so I think about, I'd like to think about fundamental, the fundamental constituents of matter, subnuclear, so the stuff that's inside nuclei and what makes the, so for example, nu- atomic nuclei are made of neutron and proton and neutron and proton are made of uh, quarks and gluons. And so I like to think about the interaction, fundamental interaction of quark and gluons and the quarks, how they interact with electrons and neutrinos and uh, the other non-strongly interacting particles. So the fundamental constituents uh, of nature. I, I like to, to, as you may have heard, we know a lot, we learned a lot in the last century about the fundamental constituents of matter and their interactions. And it's this is all codified in a theory that is called the standard model of electroweak and strong interactions. However, the standard model, despite being tested, you know, in the laboratory for energy scales and with high precision, we think is a community that is not the end of the story. There are many unanswered big puzzles in the standard model, like if, especially when you think about the connection with cosmology, like, like why there is more matter than antimatter in the universe. It's, it's an open um, mystery in the standard model. Well, well, what's dark matter? What is the nature of dark matter? It's not a question that the standard model answers. But even you know, very concrete questions like uh, what is the origin of the in nature of these uh, neutrinos, the neutrino masses. Neutrinos are the most elusive particles that we know of. They interact only very weakly with, with the matter. And so so we there's lots of open questions. So I like to think about how to challenge the standard model and you challenge it by testing some of the prediction, making, you know, working out the predictions. As a theorist, you can work out some implication for, for experiments with high precision, and then you compare it to what the experiment finds and, uh, and try to challenge the standard model. Another way to challenge a standard model is to look 
for experimentally look for something that is exactly forbidden in the standard model due to some conservation law, right? You know, there's conservation of electric charge is nobody questions that, but there are other charges, quote unquote, that we could you define. Conservation is true in the standard model, but maybe not true in extension of the standard model. So this is the kind of thing I like to think about on the theoretical side, right? And uh, and and try to stimulate new experiments or compare the experimental results with, with new theories. And um, so that's, I hope that gives you an idea. I'd like from time to time also to venture into other areas like uh, cosmology and astrophysics, but those are kind of a side interest, but it's, it's good to have connection between the subatomic interactions and, and, and the, the universe as a at large scale. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. I had two follow-up questions on that, actually. Maybe could you give even a little bit more detail about what like theorists like yourself are doing to poke and prod at the standard model to try and figure something new out? Yes, especially in what I do, uh, there's uh, two components, right? One is, is really to work out high-precision predictions in the standard model, right? So for example, there's something very basic. I mean, some, some processes like radioactive beta decays of nuclei or neutrons or, they, or the nu free neutrons that are very basic. They actually were building block. Their observation led really to the development of the standard theory of weak force and then the unified theory with, of weak and electromagnetic force. Nowadays, they can be used still to probe the standard model if you go to sufficient prediction, uh, precision. So what I do, well, one of some recent projects that I'm involved in is some of this processing, there's some correction that can be computed in so-called perturbation theory. There are small effects. You may have heard about the uh, fine structure constant of ele uh, electromagnetic fine structure constants, alpha, which is one over 137.036 and so on. It's a small number. The, the expansion parameter when you of electromagnetism, electromagnetic corrections is alpha over pi. So it's a very small number, or the order of 10 to minus few times 10 to the minus three. And so one of the current frontiers is try to compute in a reliable way this radiative correction, they're called, uh, to beta decay. So you can predict this beta decay at the sub percent level, you know, even sub per mil level, and then confront this with the experiment. If there's some new interactions, it might alter that, right? So the, the, the prediction at the per mil level. So the idea is that we, we use some basic properties of quantum mechanics, the fact that no particle is, sits there in vacuum. They constantly emit and reabsorb virtual quanta. And, and, and there are ways to make this state, qualitative statement quantitative. So we can calculate this. We can calculate this for quanta of light that we know, these are photons. And that's the physics that goes into the experimental observables if the standard model is, is correct. However, there could be hypothetical particles that get emitted for a very short time and then reabsorbed. And, and they're not in the standard model and they would also affect the observable decay rates. Okay, so, so the idea is that we compute all the standard model fluctuation, quantum fluctuations as precisely as we can. And then we look for a window for this new particle fluctuation. One component of what I do. Other components just is more phenomenology. Try to understand now we have this data, the calculation has been done by collectively from by the community. Uh, we compare there's maybe there's, there are tensions, you know, maybe the agreement, you know, it's always a statistical analysis there. So the agreement is that maybe one standard division, yeah, then it's great. Two standard division, still great. 
pre-standard image and start mm-hmm. hoping that maybe there's something new, right? And uh, and so on. So and then you start working out the implication. What kind of model? What class of model beyond the standard model could explain that? And that's also part of what I do. So I hope this gives a little more of a sense of what in concrete what we do. All right? Yeah. Yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah, it helps paint a clearer picture for me. And then uh, my second follow-up question was actually from the beginning. Uh, you said you're a senior fellow at the Institute of Nuclear Theory. Nuclear Theory. Yeah, yes. could you explain like what that what that means? I've heard of professors and you know staff scientists and yes. all this, but what is senior fellow? And also maybe explain a little more about the Institute of Nuclear Theory. I the Institute for Nuclear Theory. It's a it's an institute that was established in 1990, actually, about more than 30 years ago, and it's funded by the Department of Energy. So, but it's also hosted in the University of Washington. So, senior fellows are both essentially DOE. We 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 get grants a grant from DOE to support ourselves and and um, local research effort, as well as we and we are faculty. We are professors also at the University of Washington. Okay, so I, I should have mentioned that. So, but the the Institute for Nuclear Theory by itself is also it's broader than just a few there's four senior fellow one of them is the director and, and then there are a postdoctoral scholar and uh, depending on time one or two junior fellow which are five-year assistant professor, research assistant professors so it's a, a research environment to that tries to foster interdisciplinary collaborations across various areas of uh, nuclear theory broadly defined i hope that clarifies a little bit yeah senior yeah it's yeah that helps as a uh, senior fellow and a professor could you explain in a typical day what your job looks like ah yeah that's <laughs> an interesting question <laughs> primarily the well there's again a dual mission is to perform research and, and teach and uh, mentor students and, and, and junior investigators and postdocs. So that this is a high level. And the daily life tries to accomplish those uh, tasks. You know, a typical day, typically a few, one or two research meetings, the local collaborators or long distance collaborators with Zoom, <laughs> typically. Then there is teaching. Is I, I, Currently, I do not teach. Uh, because again, maybe one difference between senior fellow and regular professors, senior fellow have a lighter teaching load. It's not mm-hmm. 100%. So uh, teaching involved, meeting with students. There is typically some faculty service committees. I'm involved in a couple of committees in the department. Uh, and there's uh, some service work also outside of the university, like in the, in the broader community and like organizing meetings, organizing in the right now, I'm in the middle of helping with organizing this long range plan for nuclear physics. And uh, so that takes time and energy, call, Mm -hmm. phone calls, uh, Zoom calls, offline homework. And then there's, of course, I mean, a very important component of all of this is just some quiet time for research, individual research. As you grow older, it gets less and less quiet. (laughs) That's an important component of job description and what I what I like what I like to do so I don't know this is and of course yeah there's attending seminars attending workshops those are not daily I mean but in a week as, as, as you know there are typically two or three seminars and, or colloquia that I attend and sometimes even more because here at the Institute for Nuclear Theory we have uh, we host the INT hosts long-term workshops and, and programs for researchers to come and visitors to come and 
exchange ideas. So, so that's also part of of, of life here. Uh, mm -hmm. It's busy days. Yeah, <laughs> I wish we had. Uh, I had a bit more quiet time, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, that's exciting. That's yeah, yeah, sounds busy. <laughs> yeah, so you transitioned into it pretty nicely. Could you explain your roles in the uh, long range plan and what town hall? you've helped with and all that yeah the long-range plan is every six to eight years typically the the nuclear physics community broader you know both theory and experiment the whole community uh, comes together and tries to identify exciting scientific opportunity for the next let's say the next decade the next, and this is done well there's a grassroots process and then eventually there's a writing committee which is essentially the members of the so-called NSAC, Nuclear Science Advisory Committee, plus an extended writing committee from the community. This group of people gets together, writes plan. It's about you know, 100 page or less document. And then that plan is informed. It is used to inform the funding, federal funding agency, Department of Energy, Office of Science, and the National Science Foundation. And it's supposed to help the funding agency argue with Congress, you know, <laughs> about the importance of the science and what the priorities are and what the funds should go for the next big initiative. So, yeah, so that's roughly speaking. So this process goes from grassroots all the way to the writing committee, and then it goes into the hands of the funding agency. I'm right now involved in this uh, grassroots, the, the, the first level, which is a town hall, the community organizes town hall. There are nuclear science is very broad, so there are several town halls. I'm involved in something called fundamental symmetries, neutrons and neutrinos, which is basically is a shorthand of what I described earlier on, you know, this precision measurement processes involving neutrinos and neutrons, so it, uh, neutron measurement. So that's that's a part of the community that I'm, I'm part of and I'm trying to help. I'm one of four conveners of this town hall. So it's four conveners. And then we also have an extended organizing committee, which is about 10, 10 more people. We got together a couple of months ago. We started drafting a program for the town hall. The town hall will be two and a half days. It's happening on December 13th through December 15th in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So part of that was it kept me busy was coming up, you know, contributing to the organization, identifying speakers, identifying topics, organize the topics, identifying speakers for the topics, uh, inviting them. And we also invited input through white papers in the form of white papers. So we have to look at the white papers, trying to get a sense of what the community wants, acting really as community representatives at this stage. I, that's one way of describing the co-convener role of, in this town hall. And later, I'm, I'm also part of the so-called working group, so the writing group for the actual long-range plan. So, but that most of the activity for that will happen uh, next year, I mean, late winter and spring and summer of next year. And there will be connecting, in, uh, collecting input from all communities, writing the document, discussing the priorities at that level, at the higher level of the whole community, not just the sub-community. You know. So, so that, so I have this dual role uh, right now. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, definitely like to hear the different explanations of the. Uh long-range plan they're all pretty similar but some people have different viewpoints and different parts that they're 
they're working on. Could you maybe explain what what topics are going to be covered in the uh, town hall that you're acting as a convener as? Uh, yeah, there's a broad range of topics. So the, the blessing and a curse for this community is that we do not have a single big facility, right? A single big particle accelerator with all the physics clusters around that. You may have heard in nuclear structure that the, the new hot thing is the FRIB, uh, CD for radius isotopy. In QCD, the theory of strong interaction, the hot big things. I mean, there's Jefferson Lab, Brookhaven, that is uh, RIC and uh, electron ion, the future electron ion collider. So in fundamental symmetries in neutrino, there's no, because of the nature of the field, and that's, that's a blessing, we don't have a single facility, which is a curse. <laughs> so, because we are a little scattered, there's a risk that we are perceived as a little scattered. So, but we do cover a broad set of topics. So experiments, relevant experiments are made whenever you have a neutron, wherever you have a neutron source. So for example, near reactors. And this National Institute of Standard Technology, they have a dedicated neutron beam facility at the reactor. At Oak Ridge National Laboratory, they have a, a fundamental neutron, neutron physics beam in the spallation neutron source, which is mostly used for condensed material science, right? But at Los Alamos National Laboratory, there is a neutron source, ultra-cold neutron source, as part of other other things that they do at the facility. So in nuclear, nuclear experiments can be done in many places, including a FRIB, but even in uh, university, smaller scale university laboratories, right? And so, and there's also big thing like searches for rare processes that like I'll, I'll cover that in more detail uh, something called neutrinoless double beta decay they need low background so they're performed in underground laboratories around the world there's one in the us sanford lab there's a um, snow lab in canada there's one in italy grand sasso national laboratory so those are places where these experiments happen just going back so what's the common theme the common theme is probing physics beyond the sun the moon probing if you're asking questions about neutrinos, you're automatically, and neutrino mass, you're essentially automatically asking questions about physics beyond the standard model. So the topics range, as I said, from precision measurement of beta decay, precision measurement of electron scattering that are performed at Jefferson Laboratory, to search for forbidden processes, something that is not allowed in the standard model, like neutrino stop of beta decay. This is the process in which inside nuclei, two neutrons, converting to two protons and two electrons with no emission of neutrinos. Not two replicas of, ne of neutron decay, it's two replicas, except the neutrino gets, if the neutrinos are their own antiparticle, they annihilate each other, right? And they don't get out, right? So you get only two electrons. So it's a process that is fundamental because it, it creates matter, right? You start with two nucleon and stay with two nucleon, right? The neutron converts into proton. But in the process, you're making two electrons. You're making two particles of matter out of this process. And this thing violates something called lepton number conservation, leptonic charge. There's no lepton in the initial state, but there's two electron uh, leptons in the final state. And, and so it's forbidden in the standard model. It cannot happen. So if you observe it, it's a big discovery. And so that would that is going to be a topic that is going to get a lot of attention at the town hall because also it requires a big investment. The experiments are not cheap, right? Let's put it this way, it requires a big investment. So a whole portfolio of experiments that said 
challenge and probe physics, challenge the standard model and probe physics beyond the standard model. And this will be discussed. These will all be discussed. They probe different aspects of new physics, uh, not just neutrinos. And so another important aspect that would be probed is the symmetry, so-called CP, charge parity symmetry, which is essentially the symmetry that interchanges particles with antiparticles. And this can be probed by looking for permanent electric type of moments of objects like neutron or atoms and molecules. So those are things. One thing that I want to emphasize, uh, we are going to discuss in this town hall, not only what we do, but how we do it. So there will be important consideration about workforce development and climate in the community. So issues relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's, uh, it's what and how. I hope this mm -hmm. gives, in five minutes, it's difficult to cover everything, but I hope this gives you a flavor of what we're going to do. It's a two and a half day. We will be paper. There will be lots of time for community input and discussions as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, I was wondering if you can maybe uh, explain specifically as a theorist what your, I guess, input is and if that's different from like the experimentalists. Yeah, the, the, we, we work together, right? So there would be theory without experiment in, in this area. So work together, uh, our discussion will be focused. I mean, our contribution is to understand what you learn for the full full understand the full potential of a measurement right sometimes these things are the measurement comes along and then theorists realize oh not only you learn what you started out to learn but you learn also something else and, and so on. it's called like broadening the physics case of certain experiments right so and understanding sensitivity of those experiments to certain new physics models this is what we do right and and this not always is already fleshed out when the experiment starts, right? So that, that's one contribution of theory. We, and then of course we connect the dots. Theorists connect the dots among various experimental efforts and we try to unify in some underlying model, right? And that's also quite important. That's what we, what we do. And this to do this dot connecting job, again, you need various components. You need the precise calculation, you need the model building, you know, understanding what possible new models are and, and so on. So you need a broad range of theoretical tools, which no single theorist has in this field. That's that's another feature of our, of our field. You need people talking, sub-communities of theorists talking to each other. You know, the expert in nuclear structures talking to the extra expert on nucleon structure, the structure of neutron and proton to the expert on weak interactions and so on. So that's that's how this field makes progress. Yeah, that's very illuminating to the I guess there are boundaries between theory and an experiment, but I guess the whole town hall and long range nuclear plan is in part about breaking down those boundaries and making sure everyone's yep. communicating. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I guess uh, moving on from the physics, could you maybe explain a more personal aspect of uh, when and how did you decide to become a physicist? Oh, okay. That's mm -hmm. a tough one. Well, I decided to become a physicist when I got a job in physics <laughs> because no, let, let's put it this way. I will qualify that. Until I got, let's say, my first scientist job at Los Alamos. Yes, I wanted, I had an aspiration to become a physicist. I was working as a physicist, but it was a temporary contract, right? So it's kind of a tough life until there's some uncertainty, right? The postdoctoral appointment are you know, two, two plus one years. If you're in experiment with you a little longer, but so 
but going back, I mean, when I when I first thought, oh, it would be cool to be a physicist, that was about when I was in high school. Be the last year, last couple of years of high school, I was very curious uh, about science, uh, mostly because the high school track I was in was more on the, devoted on uh, humanities, so I was totally ignorant about science well, it was it was covered but not not as much as maybe i would have wanted so and yeah it was a toss-up until the very last moment between physics and biology for mm-hmm. me and then at some point i decided to in italy it's quite diff- you have to decide your major when you enroll in college mm-hmm. now that you have time to decide later so i have uh, well you can always switch but then you, you lose years exactly mm-hmm. you have to start from scratch so so i very last moment, I decided, okay, I, I want to enroll in physics, and uh, and I stayed in physics. So that, with many uncertainties later on, yeah, it's not that I. There was an aspiration to be a physicist, and then it happened when it happened, mm-hmm. <laughs> many years later. Um, yeah. So was it just like a total coin toss for whether you were going to do biology or physics, or was it just? Oh, uh, well, it's a long time ago, but I, I guess I thought that as a physicist, well. There was a passion. I mean, thinking about the universe was at some point I thought it's more exciting than thinking about uh, how cells work and stuff. Again, you think about teenage, teenage yeah. brain. <laughs> so it was at some point it developed. Yeah, but it was only in the last few months. Let's I must say, uh, let's say last few months of high school that I did decide. Okay, yeah, this what mm-hmm. I would like to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never, I don't think I've heard anyone say it was a total coin toss. I have uh, heard other people say, you know, once they finally get that permanent position, that's when they decide they're physicists. But thanks for that answer. Could you um, explain any obstacles that you had to overcome along the way? I mean, uh, being from Italy and coming to America, that yeah, could be difficult. Uh, Was there two, two body problems? Oh, uh, see, mm-hmm. well, yeah, well, I would say so. Yes. There is, there was a language barrier that's, and also in part a cultural barrier because there's some, the academic training in Italy is, at least back when I, back when I, it was quite different from the academic training here in Italy. Well, maybe, maybe a joke. Here, I, I noticed immediately when I, when I came as a visiting student here, asking questions was a virtue, it was a good thing, right? It's mm-hmm. a plus, it's a feature, not a bug. In Italy, there's this thing, at least I perceive it very clearly. If you're asking questions, it means you didn't get it. You didn't understand it. <laughs> and there's this st- and some professors, some teachers, some educators, you know, were irritated or at uh, the question and they made it, you know, they made it clear. Oh, you didn't get it, right? <laughs> so it, uh, and that, that was good. So it was a, a positive switch for me, a positive change of environment. But it also took a while to adapt to understand yeah i should ask more questions I should not just be quiet so i, I think i missed uh, a lot and <laughs> by not asking as many questions as i should have asked or mm-hmm. i could have asked so so that's that was um, part of what i call the cultural change in terms of a dual career two body yes Both, um, to my wife current wife i mean uh, we, we moved together to the US, right? And we both had uh, aspirations in science. Her background is slightly different in mathematics. And and to be completely honest, I followed her as a visiting student to UMass. And 
And after that, she followed me in the postdoctoral journey <laughs> of this uh, short-term contract. Eventually, she, well, for a while, she uh, left school. She decided, okay, I'm going to have children. And, and then uh, she went back to school and uh, got her PhD. And she's now a biostatistician at one of the local places here in Seattle. So she has, a, it, it was non-linear. It, there, was a, there were a lot of hard choices uh, made along the way, but also I call them lucky coincidences that help. I don't think there is, it's a serious issue, I think, for anyone who wants to pursue a career in science, and especially dual career in science. <laughs> it's, there's no clear path. There's no established good practices from employers, not uniformly, I would say. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's, it's a sore point, I think, <laughs> mm -hmm. for the field. And the field may be missing opportunities. But yeah. that's, it's, that's where we are. And we should work to, to improve that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we're here. That's why we ask people to talk about it, you know, make make sure they're at least known, you know? Yeah, thanks for those answers. That was very illuminating. Beyond that, uh, could you just talk about what you like to do to relax? What do you do when you're not doing physics? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Well, okay, I like the outdoors. So I like, uh, for example, yeah, one, one important component on weekends it was always hiking, you know, going for hikes, both in New Mexico. So northern New Mexico, where Los Alamos is, is fantastic for that. And the northwest here is also quite nice. There's, uh, I'm starting to explore hiking, some minor skiing in winter, <laughs> very low level. So that's the outdoor. In terms of, you know, all these things, I, I like to still think that I can play guitar a little bit. So I, I try to play a little bit guitar by myself in the evening <laughs> and I like music so listening to music is also an important uh, non-science non um, component. I like, like to read books, mystery books mostly and Italian movies, Italian language movies, mostly mystery movies. And yeah, yeah, no, that's uh... Yeah, I like to hear that people have a lot of stuff that they do outside of physics. Yeah, so getting up near the end, my questions, could you give any advice to uh, students and young researchers? I know that's a really broad question, yeah. but anything that resonates? It sounds like a very broad and maybe empty state, but try, I would say try to do follow the passion because no career path nothing is easy right so not, there will be difficulties in anything i think path you 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 start having some underlying principles that i, I really like this is my, this is my dream i it will help you overcome the difficulties right but also be don't the other advice would be don't get fixated that don't get to the point of where if you think that you don't be, get to become a scientist or a it's it's not a failure failure it's it's uh it's good to keep an open mind about what alternative career goals if you're thinking about career goals and, and just being a i'm going to say that being a well-rounded human being mm -hmm. is way more important <laughs> than being a successful scientist okay so that's uh, i would i would say that i don't know <laughs> that's what i feel <laughs> i want to say yeah i think that's good advice it's sometimes difficult to stay well-rounded and not get hyper-focused on what the next next goal is and all that but yeah and then consider life and the people around you right yeah <laughs> it, it's important <laughs> 
for sure. Thank you so much for coming. It's always great to have people talk about their life and all their research and everything. It's always illuminating. Yeah. So thank you. Okay. Maybe I, I, I should have. Should have I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This podcast was created by Brian Stanley and Professor Huihuin Lin. Season three was interviewed by Bill Good and edited by Vara Lee Sikorkar. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.